Well, welcome, welcome, welcome uh, to Gateway Church. Welcome to those of you that are watching at every campus, uh, every gathering, and watching online today. And welcome to you here at the Southlake campus. I'm honored to be back speaking to you. I want to give you a quick update on my dad, uh, as he mentioned a couple weeks ago. Uh, he preached through it, but he had uh, he lifted something heavy and ended up tearing a muscle in his uh, what's this thing called right here? Uh, hamstring. And thank you. And this is a rough start already, guys. I can't remember hamstring. So, uh, uh, so he pulled a muscle in his hamstring, and uh, it it swelled up really bad, bled uh, internally, and then all that blood uh, trickled down to his feet, uh, which then caused the nerves to inflame. Uh, it's a really hard medical term to say. I think the abbreviation is RSD or something like that. And so uh, his foot swelled up and it caused uh, the nerves to go crazy. He described it as like, as if your basement in your house is flooding and uh, your house starts uh, banging against the walls trying to get your attention, like just uh, a, a, a significant amount of pain in his leg. Uh, and so, you know, you hear pull, pulled hamstring and you think like, okay, you know, that's, uh, that's a pretty simple thing. Um, I'm going to show you some pictures. We debated. I just met with everyone back there <laughs> because, uh, well, number one, I don't want to faint in front of you. So uh, it's not bloody or anything like that. But if you're squeamish at all, you might not want to look at this. But I just want to give you an idea of what actually is going on in his foot. So this first picture is when it really started to swell. Get ready. Here it is. It swelled up really bad, turned black and blue. Here's a, the next picture is kind of a progression of that. Uh, and then here's a picture that he took yesterday. And you can see that the swelling has gone down significantly, but it almost looks like he has a sunburn. And that's because of the inflamed nerves that are going on. He's on some medicine that is going to relieve uh, the pressure on those nerves and has already caused the swelling to go down. So he's keeping his leg propped up. And, uh, and so he's doing great though, recovering uh, and so he's feeling great, and we'll be back next week uh, to start that series that we just heard about, which is the seven churches of Revelation. He told me a little bit about it. He's been uh, spending a lot of time sitting in bed, you know, keeping his feet propped up. And uh, what does a preacher do when he's got nothing else to do is study a lot. So you are going, I was like so excited to hear what he's going to talk about. You're definitely going to want to hear this message and that series starts uh, next week. So make sure that you're here for that. We would love for you to be a part of that. Uh, and then uh, uh, let me just give you a quick update as well. Dad men mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Uh, my family and I, we have been living for about the last year in Amarillo, Texas, and uh, we just, uh, over the last couple of weeks, moved back here to the area. Um, we're excited about that. Um, it's been great. It's been a good move. God has worked out all the plans. It was very quick, and so we had to rush to get the kids into a school and find a rental house around here uh, so that we could move in on time for them to go to school. We put them into a Christian school here uh, in the area, and they're doing great and loving that. Uh, and uh, Hannah, my wife, um, accepted a job at an organization called Embrace Grace. Many of you will know that name because it was birthed right out of Gateway Church, uh, started from a small group right here, and now has grown to be a ministry that impacts people all over the country. And it is literally her dream job. It is her favorite thing in the world, and she's doing such great work. If you don't know about Embrace Grace, 
they help uh, mothers who find themselves in unexpected pregnancies and do not have a support system around them. And so uh, it's, a, it's a very important work, something that I'm very passionate about. And I'll tell you a little bit more about it actually a little bit later. But uh, Hannah's doing great and enjoying that. Uh, my daughter's 11. She's here in the front row. And uh, she's the funniest person I've ever met. I was thinking about taking her to improv and see if they'd let her do a couple minutes of stand-up because she has me in stitches every day. She's so funny. Uh, Grady is 14. He is fully 14. He is fully a teenager. Uh, and that means that, uh, you know, uh, he smells bad sometimes, you know? Um, <laughs> He acts like a teenager. I, I got permission to share this uh, from him. I, I, he's here with his friend Judah, and uh, I, I, I recently, from, you know, Judah came up to Amarillo and hung out with us there for a little while. And so I drove from Amarillo back here to drop Judah off, and we were going to spend some time in town. And that's about a five-hour drive. And uh, for no less than two weeks, my car smelled like a boy's locker room after that. <laughs> Uh, and so we're making the drive and I was already stressed out. I like to keep my truck really clean. And these, these dudes had whole meals. I don't know if they had a microwave back there. They were making like microwave meals and stuff. They were eating constantly and the trash was flying everywhere. The drinks were spilling everywhere. And uh, then soon enough, they said, hey, can we pull over and stop at a gas station? And so I said, yeah, sure. I'm thinking they have to go to the bathroom because they've been eating and drinking like crazy. We get to the gas station and they just start loading up on snacks, like they were already hungry again. So they're just like a bottomless pit. And so they, they come out with all these snacks and, you know, so I'm like, okay, well, let's, let's buy all these snacks, you know. We get back in the car. We're not two more hours down the road. They're like, hey, can we stop at the gas? And I'm like, finally, they, they do have to go to the bathroom. We stop. They just wanted more food. That was it. They just, that was the entire trip. Uh, it was an expensive trip for me. I took out a small loan. I got a really good interest rate. It was fine. That's all they do is eat just constantly. That's all they do. And uh, so the other day, you know, um, Grady was outside playing basketball with his friends and he came in and, you know, he's 14 and he, he walked in and it was so sweet because he like sat right next to me and he wrapped his arm around me and he laid his head on my shoulder and he kind of snuggled with me, you know, and that doesn't always happen when, when a kid is 14 years old, you know, they start to maybe kind of pull themselves away from you. And so you want to cherish those moments, you know, and so I'm hugging him and I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, how can I get out of this without scarring him emotionally for life? <laughs> because he was outside playing basketball and wore his hoodie and it was 100 degrees outside. And I felt like I was snuggling with a smelly nuclear reactor, you know, like that's, that was what I had next to me, you know. And so uh, that, that's just the stage of life that we're in. Him and his friends came in from playing basketball. They literally elevated the, in, the temperature in the entire house just by walking in. And so we're just dealing with all the teenager things, but they're loving school and loving being back here in the area. And so um, that's an update on our life. My primary responsibility now here at Gateway is to teach and preach. And so I'm so excited about that. This is my favorite place in the world to preach. And, uh, and this is my, my dream job as well. So we're just so glad to be back here and uh, serving on, on the team again. So I want to talk to you about uh, something that's uh, talked about really, really commonly in church, really often. This is talked about all the time. Uh, Jill, Pastor Jelani, I know last weekend was uh, a holiday weekend. If you didn't get a chance to see that message, hopefully you watch it online, but go back and watch it. It was incredible. And he talked about forgiveness and this is going to be somewhat of a follow-up to that. This pertains some of the elements of forgiveness. And uh, I've titled the message today, Fish Tales. 
And uh, again, we're going to talk about a really popular subject in church, and that is the story of Jonah. Um, Well, it's popular in kids' church, I'll say that. Uh, Maybe not so much in adult services. Uh, I can't think of the last time I heard an entire message on Jonah. And, uh, and, and so we're going to dive in, and it's an important text, and so it's important for us to pay attention to it. It's not a kid's story. It's far too complicated for it to be a kid's story. There's far too many layers. There's far too many messages that are found in the story of Jonah. So it's fine for us to, to kind of boil that down and teach the kids that. But growing up in church as a pastor's kid, it was a story that I heard a million times over. The lesson of it was something very similar, which was don't disobey God or you'll get eaten by a whale. And so uh, that was it. That's what I thought the depth of that entire story was all about. And it turns out there's so much more than that. And in fact, uh, we often associate it. We say Jonah and the whale. That's often what we say. Uh, you know, sometimes you, you, if you even mention the word Jonah, or if I say like uh, to friends, I'm going to preach about Jonah this weekend. So you mean Jonah and the whale? And it's like, you know, we should realize that the book of Jonah is four chapters long and the portion about the fish is one verse. It's two sentences. The story is not about the fish. We should also point out that whale is never mentioned in the scriptures about Jonah. It's not a whale. It says the great fish. It would be just as accurate to call it a sea monster as it would be to call it a whale because we don't know. It was just a really great fish, great because he was cool or great because he was huge. I have no idea. It was just a great fish. That's all that we know from the Bible. But the story is not about the fish. It's about so much more than that. And honestly, I did struggle with this story for, for, for many years. I I grew up hearing the story. And even when I was a kid, I was like, uh, are you sure? Are you sure that's what happened? Jonah lived inside the belly of the whale for for three days and three nights, and he wrote this elegant poem while he was in there. I'm not sure what he wrote on or how he, how he was able to speak this very eloquent prayer, and I struggled with it. And as, adult, as an adult, it got worse and worse, and people weren't addressing the story of Jonah. And so uh, I, I started to question it. Now, uh, that didn't go very well for me. Like me uh, going like, I'm not so sure. Um, I immediately was met with backlash. It was not an, a subject that was okay to talk about. And, uh, and, and that sort of sent me away to, to have a moment with God and say, God, you, you gotta tell me, am I, uh, am I being a bad person for questioning this story? Am I being a bad person for needing more information and more context about this? And so I just, I, I, I had had a particularly difficult conversation. I went home and I prayed and I said, God, you gotta, you gotta tell me, is this okay for me to do? I'll never forget. God said, do your worst. And in all of my conversations with other people around me, when I had brought up the struggle that I was experiencing, I was met with what I would call fear and insecurity. Don't question those things. That's a dangerous path. Don't do that. Don't do that. Just believe. That's what I was told over and over again. Just believe. Just accept it for what it is and believe. And I wept at the security of God to say, do whatever you want because I'm certain that you'll still find me. Now, people question all the time and they fall away from God, but my belief is that the reason that that happens is because so often when people are questioning or struggling with something, they are pushed out of the community of the church because of whatever feelings we have about those questions. And so then they are left to struggle alone. It's okay 
to wrestle with God. It's okay to, to, to take these scriptures seriously enough to investigate them. It's okay to do those things. And the very best way that you can do it is to do it with God so that you have the Holy Spirit illuminating the scriptures to you and to do it with community in the body of Christ. And so often that doesn't happen. We push those people out. I was just talking about this to a friend of mine this week. And he said, that's what happened to my brother when he started asking questions. The church literally ostracized him and he ended up not being a believer today. And he said, I'm so grieved about it. We should not uh, treat people poorly because they are struggling with something. We should welcome them in and say, let's go on a journey together with the presence of God so that we can wrestle through these stories. So here's something that you need to know about the book of Jonah. There are uh, theologians and scholars and Hebrew scholars that, uh, that believe that the Bible is inspired, that it is true, that it is God's word, and, uh, and that it is accurate, that it is, it is true and, and, and inspired by God. And, uh, and, and they will say that the story of Jonah is historical. It is a, an historical account of a, a prophet, Jonah, who we know is a historical character because we see him in other passages, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But they would say, yes, we, we, we affirm and believe in the scriptures, and so therefore Jonah is a historical telling. There are other scholars, Hebrew scholars, and, and, and theologians, and they believe the exact same thing on the first part. They believe that the Bible is inspired, that it is holy, that it is true, that it is right, that it is God-breathed. They believe all of those things, and they also believe that the story of Jonah is a parable, using a historical character, much like Jesus did whenever he talked about the beggar Lazarus uh, and the rich man. Jesus used a historical figure, Lazarus the, the beggar, and he also tells it in the form of a parable. Now, it doesn't really matter uh, for this context today. We will learn every lesson that we need to learn, no matter which camp you fall in. It's not important for us to try to decide or solve that. It's more important for us to say, we can leave that as a mystery, but we ought to take this story seriously and say, God, what do you have to speak to me about this? And what happens so often is because it is relegated down to a kid's story, we leave it pushed to the side. We don't take it very seriously. It, it would be, I'm not going to do it, but it would be really interesting to say how many of you are familiar with the story of Jonah and see the hands and then say, and how many of you have spent any exhaustive amount of time studying the book of Jonah? It would be far fewer hands. There's no judgment to that. That was my position for so many years. And I relegated it to this kid's story that I learned, but it didn't seem to have very much bearing on my life as an adult. And so what we want to do then is take it very seriously. We want to take this thing seriously. And, and in March, I preached a series about the promised land that was partly as a result of the struggle where I wanted to go back and I wanted to find the, the truth and the depth of the Old Testament, Old Testament scriptures. And so uh, I, I'm just, putting it out there that there are two camps and they, they, both, they both believe in the whole, uh, the whole sanctity of the Bible, the God-breathed part, but there are two different ways that you could look at the story of Jonah. Again, it doesn't really matter for this, but as I started studying it, I just read it over and over. I was blessed to find great stuff by Tim Mackey. He's a Hebrew scholar. So he brings light to that by being able to read it in its original Hebrew context and to be able to point out the, the, the poetry of all of this book and the things that it's trying to tell us. So uh, the, the, the 
first thing that we want to talk about today is that uh, the there are this is something that we can all agree on. There are different literary styles used in the different books of the Bible. There's different authors. There's just different methods of telling the story. There's just different categories that they fall into. The Psalms fall into a more poetic approach. The, uh, the book of Revelation is a more prophetic book. The, uh, the Gospels are a narrative story about uh, the, the man, Jesus Christ, that lived on the earth. The prophets traditionally take a very historical approach of laying out the exact history of what took place, and they'll include lots of names and dates and titles and things like that in order to uh, bring uh, a precedence to the historical views that they hold. And so there's all these different kind of literary styles, and the book of Jonah I would like to propose to you today is written in a particular style that we're not used to seeing in Scripture. That style is satire. It is satire. It is written in a way that is supposed to blow up these big proportional things and give this big, dramatic, funny story. I believe that a Hebrew audience would have laughed at this story because they would have seen the, the, the way that it is in the original language brings all of these things out. They would have laughed at this story. And so we'll talk more about why it is satire. Let me just go through a couple different things that they would have noticed a Hebrew audience. First is that the, the way that it starts, the entire book starts with saying that Jonah is the son of Amittai. Now, Jonah means dove, which we associate with purity, and uh, Amittai means faithfulness. So it says, Jonah, the dove, purity, the son of faithfulness. And then as the story goes along, they will hear that he was not quite faithful and not quite pure as the story goes along. And so right from the beginning, you have this, this contrast drawn up. And, and so the book seems to be uninterested in what actually ends up happening to Jonah. How does he change? How does his character morph and grow? It, it does, we don't get any of that stuff. We don't know how he ended. It doesn't seem that he ended the story very well. In fact, I'll just show you, this is the very last scripture of the fourth book of Jonah, which is the last book or the last chapter of Jonah. And this is what it says. Uh, It's verse 11. It says, and should not I pity Nineveh, this is God talking, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? There's no more. That's it. That's how the book ends. No redeeming character qualities in Jonah. No surprise ending there. No Jonah saying, I repent, God, and this is what I'm going to do from now on. That's how it ends. And in case you have never spent very much time reading the story of Jonah, uh, God seems to be really concerned with the cattle. It ends with cattle. It's the last word of the scripture. And I don't know if you know this or not, but when the uh, the people of Nineveh did confess and give their lives to God, um, the cattle did too. I'm not kidding. You can go back and look at it. Uh, the, the, the cattle repented and fasted. They fasted. The, the cattle stopped eating. And that in and of itself is a miracle. I have never seen a cow in my life that is doing anything other than eating. That's all they do. That's what cattle do. They eat all the time. I like to be outdoors. Sometimes I go out early in the morning or late at night and I'll be driving through like country roads and my headlights hit a bunch of cows and uh, they're still eating. 
It's the middle of the night. That's all they do. I'm like, do you sleep? Do you do anything else? They eat all the time. But in the book of Jonah, God is really concerned with the cattle, so much so that they fasted, prayed, they wore sackcloth. I don't know. It's a wild story. I'm telling you, the satire is heavy in this story. It should make us laugh. It should be fun and funny for us to listen to this story. And there's a reason why. We're going to get there, okay? So uh, Jonah never learns his lesson. Even, even when he does obey, he does the bare minimum that God asks him to do. There's no redeeming moment where he learns his lesson and changes or anything like that. Everything in the story is upside down. Jonah, the prophet, uh, he, he disobeys all the time. He, he does the wrong thing over and over again in this story. And yet everyone who is painted as the big bad enemy of the story, they always surrender to God immediately. Immediately. For example, when uh, Jonah is in the boat with pagan sailors, this is where he gets thrown overboard. And uh, then uh, after that, swallowed by a, uh, a great fish. In that story, they ask him, Who, what God do you serve? And this is his response. It's in Jonah chapter one, verse nine. It says, and he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. So the sailors are in a really bad storm, a very bad storm. And they're afraid that they're going to die. And so they cast lots and they figure out that Jonah is the reason why they are in this predicament. So they go to Jonah and they say, what God do you serve? And he says, I serve the God that made this very ocean right here. He also made the dry land that we would all like to be on right now. That was his response. Does it seem like Jonah was fearful of God in that moment? When they were like, hey, what should we do exactly then to make your God stop trying to kill us? He was like, oh, you know, we could go back to Nineveh where I'm supposed to go. You know what? Just throw me overboard. I'd rather die. I'm good. Just throw me overboard. That'll, that, that should solve the problem. This is not a God-fearing person in this moment. The story is supposed to draw attention to that, that the man of God is not acting the way that he is supposed to. So then what do these pagan sailors do? Well, then that's found in Jonah chapter 1, verse 15. It says, So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly a true fear, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This story is supposed to point out to us that the people who are supposed to do the right thing are not doing it, and the people who are supposed to do the wrong thing are turning from their wicked ways and doing the right thing. We're supposed to see this giant contrast in all of this and recognize this and see what is going on, what is happening in this flipped upside down world. And so in Hebrew, the poetry of all of this is so strong. Jonah is supposed to go to Nineveh, but instead he goes down to Joppa. Instead he goes down into the, the sea and gets in the boat. He goes down into the, the, the bottom level of the boat. He lays down to go to sleep and then he's hurled down into the ocean. All of this poetic language is located here in this story. He goes, drifts down to the bottom of the sea. It says he ends up in the roots of the mountains that seaweed wraps around his head and he ends up at the bottom of the earth and he gets a barred underneath the earth and he ends up in Sheol. And then the fish scoops him up and brings him up, rising up to dry land to the place where he's supposed to be bringing him back to the, the calling that God has asked for him. He, he, he cries out 
in, in, in this moment of desperation for God to save him. And so he's restored back to the opportunity to be able to fulfill the calling that God has on his life. And it carries that form or that arc. It, it brings us through uh, pointing all of this out. When he was supposed to go east to go to Nineveh, he had straight west. In fact, I'll show you a map so that we can get a, a better idea of this. Uh, Israel is just a little bit north. It's not on this map, but Israel is just a little bit north of Joppa. And he's supposed to go over to Nineveh, which is east. You can see where Nineveh is. And uh, instead, he goes straight towards Tarshish. Now, once you pass that, that is a vast ocean. This was, in essence, the edge of the known world for them. This was as far west as he could possibly go. For you flat earthers, there must be like a wall of ice on the other side of that. I don't know, but they could not go past that, okay? They couldn't do it. So he's going as far west as he could possibly go. And there is Nineveh there, 550 miles inland. My favorite thing, especially in some of the kids' books that talk about uh, the story of Jonah and the great fish, is that uh, sometimes a lesson, I've even heard it, uh, adults talk about this, sometimes the lesson that is pointed out is uh, that... uh, God used the the great fish to bring Jonah to his actual destination, which makes me wonder how that fish could walk 550 miles inland to Nineveh. We don't know where he ended up. We don't know, but he had quite a journey from there still to make it to Nineveh. But the point of the story is telling us that everything that he's supposed to do, he's doing the opposite of those things. He's going the opposite of everywhere that he's supposed to go. And then finally, he makes it to Nineveh and he's supposed to preach to them, and, 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 and he doesn't want to be there. It's pretty obvious that he doesn't want to be there. And so uh, he, he preaches a five-word sermon for one day. Uh, in, in the English, it's uh, like seven or eight words. Uh, in, in essence, what he said is, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. But in Hebrew, it's five words. He preaches a five-word sermon. This is kind of what it looked like. Him walking through town going, you're going to die you're going to die. 40 days, you're going to die. Oh, you're definitely going to die. 40 days, you're going to die. You're going to die 40 days. 40 days, you're going down. Anybody notice anything that's missing from that sermon? Well, God, maybe. <laughs> like God told him to go there. You think maybe he could mention like, yeah, God, the God I serve, Yahweh, you know, he, he's coming for you. No, none of those things. 40 days, you're going to die. That was his message. Now, Jonah walks around for one day in this city and he says, 40 days and you're going to die. You'll be overthrown. Are they, how are, are they to know that it was an, another army that was coming? Was it God? We have no idea. Everything is backwards in this story. Jonah never even uh, meets the, the king of Nineveh. Uh, instead, word just makes it up to the king of Nineveh. So I want you to imagine for just a moment that the king of Nineveh is meeting with his advisors. And uh, they go, um, yeah, King, um, something weird happened yesterday. We need to tell you about it. Um, there was this guy, and uh, I totally get that we're the greatest empire that the world has ever seen to, to date. Uh, but this guy, he walked around town, and uh, he said we were going to be overthrown. And the king says, oh, well, uh, was he a prophet? Uh, we, you know, he didn't say uh, he just said we were going to be overthrown. Well, did he look presentable? Did he look like, uh, did he look like a good dude? Is that what he looked like? Well, he, uh, 
I'm going to be honest with you on this. He's, he smelled like he lived inside of a fish. Um, he was very disheveled. He was uh, wearing seaweed for clothing. We don't know why. Um, and he smelled awful. And, uh, and he, said, he said, 40 days, we'd be overthrown. And the king of Nineveh was like, guys, this sounds serious. <laughs> this is a big deal. Um, what I'd like you to do is tell every single person that they need to fast, stop eating food. No food, no water, they need to fast, and they need to wear sackcloth. And someone's like, what? Hold, hold on, you're talking about wearing burlap, that really uncomfortable stuff? You know it chafes, right? You know we don't want to do that, right? You get that? And he's like, no, 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 I know. We got to take this seriously. I want you to wear sackcloth and we're going to fast. And this is, this is how we're going to deal with this. And they go, cool, King, is that, is that everything? And he goes, uh, you know what? Just to be safe, I'm just throwing this out there. Just, just an idea. Let's have all the animals do it too. Sorry, what? You want the animals to stop eating? And, and how do we enforce that? I'm sorry, what do you want to do? And he's like, no, this, this guy's terrifying. He's a fish person. We don't know what's going on. Let's just do it, all right? Make the animals stop eating. That's what's going to happen today, okay? And then they do it. And, and Jonah leaves the city and he goes out and he sets up a little booth for himself and he sits and he watches safely outside of the city's headquarters. Let me tell you what this is. This, this, this idea of, of him coming out of here and he walks in and he gives them the bare amount of information possible and then he leaves the city and he sets up a booth. Why? So that he can watch what's going to happen. This is called prophetic sabotage. He did not want Nineveh to be saved. He did not want them to experience the grace of God. So he walks around and he gives the bare minimum message of judgment, but he never shows the love of God. And then he sits outside the city and it's my belief that he was sitting there waiting for God to come and destroy them. I'm gonna watch this. I'm gonna watch it happen. And every time we tell people about the judgment of God or the fact that he hates wickedness in the world, but we don't show them the love of God, we commit prophetic sabotage. Every time we point out what someone is doing wrong without showing them the love of God, it is prophetic sabotage. It is, I hope you pay for the things that you have done and I refuse to tell you about the grace of God that he is pursuing you every day, every night, that he wants to be with you, that he desires you, that he loves you more than anybody else loves you in the world. That is prophetic sabotage. And so Jonah sits outside, watches and waits for destruction to come. It's understandable actually, if you look at it, why Jonah would feel that way. Let me tell you about the Assyrians. The Assyrians occupied Nineveh, but they also occupied, uh, they were the, the largest empire of that time. They occupied massive amounts of area, all, uh, uh, encompassing parts of Egypt uh, into what is today Iraq. Uh, Nineveh is uh, located in Mosul in Iraq. And uh, in, in fact, uh, ISIS recently destroyed many of the remains of the city of Nineveh. We had amazing remains of the city of Nineveh and it was recently destroyed by ISIS. And so they encompassed this, in, this huge swath of land. They were a giant empire and they had taken over 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel. 
And you want to know what they did whenever they would take over a new land? They were brilliant. People today still study how the Assyrians accomplished the military feats that they accomplished and what they did because they were such amazing warriors and they were so prolific at going in and conquering a place and taking it over. And one of the things that they would do is that they would take Jewish people after they would uh, uh, take over a, a Jewish city, they would take Jewish people, and I'm going to try not to be too descriptive, but they would impale them on a sharp stick and then stick that stick in the ground, leaving the body hanging up. So that as Jewish people would enter the city, they would remember what it looks like when you go against the Assyrians. When they conquered a city, they would take all the leaders of that city and they would tie them up by their hands and their feet and they had developed a method where they could skin them alive that would keep them alive for as long as possible. And the whole city would have to watch it happen. Can we understand a little bit now why Jonah might not want to go to Nineveh? Can we understand a little bit the adultness of this story? And so Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh because he doesn't want them to be able to cheaply get out of what they've done. He wants them to experience the pain and the hurt that they've caused for so many other people. Just to put it in context, it would be as if you were living in the days of Hitler and Nazi Germany and God tells you, I want you to be a prophet, go into the city and they're all going to repent and I'm going to forgive them. Wouldn't you be just a little tempted? Just a little bit? To be like, God, I'd really rather see him die. Could you do it? Could you be the messenger of grace even in the face of such evil? We understand now a little bit more about why it was so difficult for Jonah to go into this place. I've heard it said over and over that Jonah was afraid or scared to go into Nineveh to preach to them, but he wasn't afraid of that. He didn't leave because he was afraid of Nineveh. He didn't go as far west as he could so that he could get away from Nineveh. The Bible says that he went as far west as he could so that he could get away from God. And so then when he goes to Nineveh, it's not because he's scared. We saw over and over that Jonah was ready to die. He was begging to die. There's like a million times in four chapters where he begs God to kill him and he he gets thrown overboard. He wants to die. That isn't the problem. So let's take a look at Jonah chapter four, verse one, and see why did Jonah struggle so much to go and, and witness to the Ninevites? It says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry that God did not kill him. And he prayed to the Lord and said, oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah didn't want to go to this evil city that had murdered so many of God's people because he knew that God would show them mercy. He knew for a fact that as awful and as evil as these people had been, God would forgive them. 
We sometimes, if we're honest, might resent the never-ceasing grace of God. We might sometimes remind ourselves of all the good things that we've done, remind ourselves that we came to church this week, that we pressed in, that we pursued God. And we might sometimes look at all the evil in the world and be caught up in our hatred, but unwilling to share in God's grace and mercy. We don't look down on Jonah as much when we, write it, when we say it this way. We don't look down on his unwillingness to go there. We understand that he had been impacted deeply by the effects of the wickedness of this group of people. Now, there are a few other signs of this story being written as a, a satire, and, and those things are, are made evident in what we see, that, that, that here Jonah is struggling with all of these things, and over and over, Jonah does the bare minimum, and he does the wrong thing over and over, and, and the people who are supposedly evil and do all of these wrong things continue to submit to God, continue to do the right thing. So uh, why then write this story as a satire? The reason is because the Jewish people felt that same hatred that Jonah felt towards the Assyrians. And so the story is written as a mirror. Uh, a, a show uh, that everyone is familiar with that has been around for a long time is Saturday Night Live. What they do on Saturday Night Live is it's a show of satire. They exaggerate everything that's going on and taking place. They exaggerate it to all of these big proportions and they're exaggerating what, it, what our culture looks like. And we laugh and we joke about it. But if you stop and you think about it for just a moment, you go, actually, they're making fun of us. And it's supposed to draw attention to how ridiculous it may be if we were to continue to go down this path. The book is written in this form so that the Jewish people would say, how ridiculous is Jonah? Can you believe the way that he acted? Wait a second, would you go to the Assyrians? It's a mirror that reflects back to us. It's a mirror that is supposed to point back to us so that we will stop for just a moment and say, are we sometimes resistant to the grace of God even when it applies to the evil that we see in the world around us? So Jonah is a type of Christ or a foreshadowing of Christ, but he is also a type or a foreshadowing of us. And that mirror points back to us. Jonah is like the Old Testament version of the New Testament story of the Good Samaritan. Because when they hear the word Samaritan, they think bad, but instead the Samaritan is good. It is Jesus taking the story and flipping it upside down on its head so that we will stop and think and pause and wonder what role we are supposed to take in all of these things. And the end of the story drives all of this home when Ju Jonah is sitting outside the city, waiting to see how they will respond, waiting to see how God will respond. And he's sitting at that booth as he's watching there. And in Jonah chapter four, starting in verse nine, it says, but God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. He loves being angry. He's like, I'd rather die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant. Now, as he, was, as he had this booth set up, a plant sprung up overnight and gave him shade from the sun. Uh, and then the very next night, a worm came and ate the plant and it died. And so he was mad about that too. And so this is what the Lord is talking about. You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, 
that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left hand, and also some cattle. There's some cattle there too, just so, so we can remember that part. The story is a masterpiece. God takes Jonah back to what he first said when he said, my serve the God that is the God, the creator of the land and the sea. And, and, and God is saying, the, this creation that I have created, I caused this plant. I am the one that caused this plant to grow. And you resent that I took it away because it was servicing your needs. But now when we're talking about 120,000 people that live in this city, you want me to wipe them off the face of the earth. On, on this day, the weekend where we remember 9-11, we should just pause for just a moment and remember that as, as terrible as it was and as awful as it was for so much innocent life to be lost, Jesus still passionately pursues the hearts of those terrorists. He loves them so much. And so the lesson from Jonah for us to learn is that it's okay for us to share in God's anger towards wickedness, but only if we will also share in his mercy towards people. So uh, Hannah works at Embrace Grace. I told you about that. I'm gonna tell you a story super quick. Uh, Ryan and Amy Ford are here um, and Amy started this ministry and she told me a story that I asked her if I could share. And it's about a young woman named Brooke. I've changed the name. And uh, she uh, found herself in an unexpected pregnancy and she was a Wiccan. She practiced witchcraft and she heard about the group Embrace Grace and she started going. And she said, right from the beginning, I'm gonna be honest, I'm a Wiccan. I'm not here for religious things, I am here because I want the free stuff. And so they said, great, you can, that's, that's totally fine. And Amy was really praying for her to come to the Lord. So she went through the whole 12 week uh, experience. And at the end, she still did not receive Christ and uh, they lost touch and it had been about uh, a year or so. And, uh, and finally, Brooke called Amy back and she said uh, that she had been feeling like God was speaking to her. She'd been feeling like God, I feel like maybe you're, you're speaking to me. A year after she'd been through Embrace Grace and, and God told Amy, you planted seeds, you, you just wait, you know? And so uh, a year later, uh, Brooke works at a, a gas station and she's there working. And right before she goes into work, she says, God, if you're really here and you care about me and you, you, you're there, I need you to give me a sign. She's working that day and a very nervous young man walks up to the counter and he's visibly nervous and he says, I don't know why, I don't know what I'm doing, but I feel so strongly that God told me to tell you that he sees you, that he loves you, and that he cares about you. Amen. Brooke told Amy that she went home that day and she put on the tiara that they get whenever they go through Embrace Grace and she looked at herself in the mirror and she believed that God loved her in that moment and she accepted Christ to be the Lord and Savior of her life that day. Is witchcraft evil? Absolutely. But that young man served as a proper form of Jonah on that day and showed the mercy and the love of God. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes for me? I want to just mention something because we're talking about support for 
women who find themselves in unexpected pregnancies. I know Texas, everyone knows this, recently did the, the heartbeat bill. There are going to be many more women who don't have the support around them. And it would be real easy in this moment maybe to celebrate the heartbeat bill and forget about the person. That religious nature creeps in on us so easily. And we as the church, it's true, we're called to speak up for what's right and just but to show profound and overwhelming love to the person. It's also true that one in four women have had an abortion. Those numbers are not different in the church than they are in the world. So while we may stand up for what we believe is right. If that's you here today, male or female, and you've been affected by abortion, you should know that God is obsessed with you. He's madly in love with you. Studies show that nearly half of the women who have had abortions, that when they hear the pastor speak about forgiveness, they think it doesn't apply to them. So let me say it again to you. God is madly and passionately in love with you. The reason that God hates sin is because he loves the person. Let us not be a church that only hates sin and doesn't love the person. And so Lord, today, we pray that you would give us the strength to be the type of Jonah that does what you did, Lord, that goes out warring for what is right, but giving grace to every person that we encounter. May we be a people of grace. And Lord, may the church rise up in this time to help support women who are in need of support in the times of unexpected pregnancies. May we be a group of people that passionately extends the grace of God to everyone and never chooses to be upset at your never ceasing mercy. So God, give us the strength to be ambassadors of your grace and your mercy today. We pray all these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.